Let you know I am a Tennessee Volunteer fan. You can say boo. But I told my mother to prove what a great son I am, I was going to leave early and come to Tuscaloosa and watch that tacky ball game yesterday afternoon. That was a wonderful ball game, and I rejoice with you if you're an Alabama fan. It was a wonderful game to watch. Uh, You've heard of the most famous whiskey in Tennessee. Of course, that's Jack Daniels. Do you know what the most famous wine is in Tennessee? When are we going to ever beat Alabama? Looks like we're going to have another year like that as well. I'm so thankful we can be together and study an assigned topic. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to focus our thoughts this morning, both in Bible class and morning worship hour, and then once again this afternoon when we return after our fellowship meal together. While you're turning, let me share with you my all-time favorite story. It's that of a little boy of dark complexion. He went to the circus. He made his way through the entrance, and there he was met by a clown selling helium-filled balloons. To peddle his wares, the clown would let one balloon loose from the pack. He would let it go, and it would fly up into the clouds and disappear. And then he'd do another balloon, and then another balloon. And, and the little boy watched. There was a white balloon, and it disappeared into the clouds, and then a red balloon, and it disappeared into the clouds, and then a yellow balloon, and so the, the little boy of darker complexion went over to the clown and pulled on his breeches legs, and he said, Mr. Clown, he said, if you let that, um, if you let that black balloon go, Would it fly as high as the others? And the clown replied, Oh, yes, son. It's not the color of the balloon. It's what's on the inside that determines how high it flies. Isn't that a great story? Keep your heart with all diligence. What's on the inside? For out of it are the issues of life, we are told in Proverbs 4.23. As a man thinks in his heart what's on the inside, so is he, we are told in Proverbs 23, verse 7. Out of the abundance of the heart, what's on the inside, the mouth speaketh. We are told in Matthew chapter 12, about verse 32. If our heart, what's on the inside, condemns us not, we have peace with God, we are told in 1 John chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. The Bible gives a great deal of attention to what's on the inside determining how high we fly. It is not the complexion of your skin or the pigmentation of the same. 
It is not the size of your bank account. It is not the kind of car that you drive, the clothes that you wear, the people that you know. Ladies and gentlemen, it is what's on the inside that determines how high you fly. And thus our first lesson of interest this morning. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart. Read with me Matthew 12, beginning with verse 28, and we will go through verse 31. Then one of the scribes, remember that, came and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Which is the first commandment? Which is the greatest commandment of all commandments? Jesus answered him, The in front of every other commandment. The protos, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the protos in front of every other commandment. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment than these. Now, as we focus on specifically Mark 12, verses 29 and 30 today, this is what we hope to do in each of our three lessons. To begin, we will spend some time in the arena called interpretation. And we're going to see what is actually going on in this text and its background, its context. And then having spent some time in the arena of interpretation, trying to put our finger on the pulse of the passage, we'll step into a second arena called application. And we'll try to make our findings live for our day. And invite our findings into our personal lives. That being said, first of all this morning, let's take our particular passage, Mark 12, 29 to 31, and step into the arena of interpretation. Let's do two things there. First of all, let's take the passage and set it into its context. Let's see what's going on in the background. Let's look at the canvas against which this particular passage is painted. And then we'll step into the text itself. In the arena of interpretation, as we look at the context of this passage, there is something going on in the realm of conflict. Back up, if you would, to chapter 11 of Mark, and no particularly verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and his followers, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, 
and the elders came to him. Now, usually in the New Testament, when you find these individuals grouped together, the chief priests, scribes, elders, implicit references to a group of individuals called the sitting together ones, the Sanhedrin. They were the Jerusalem or the Jewish Supreme Court. They would make decisions relative to matters of civil conflict among Jews. And they would make decisions relative to religious matters among Jews. And so in the background of our particular passage, we find Jesus and his followers in the city of Jerusalem, their religious capital. And you have the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, coming to him. They engage in dialogue relative to authority. And then you come to Matthew chapter 12, the chapter that houses our passage of interest. Note, if you would, verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. Then they, that would be the chief priests, scribes, and elders, the Sanhedrin, then they sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him In his words. Pause. Look at verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying. In the background of our passage of interest, we have Jesus encountering three specific groups of people who have direct or indirect connection to the Jerusalem or Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. We have the Pharisees, we have the Herodians, and we have the Sadducees. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what Jesus has to say in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, is a message for all three of those special interest groups. Our text has something specific to say to the Pharisees. It has something specific to say to the Herodians. And it has something specific to say to the Sadducees. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our studies of interest this morning. First of all, in our Bible class hour, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, sets us into the Lord's message specifically designed in background for the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians came to Jesus to catch him, literally to net him or to snare him in his words. When they came, you might catch him in his words, parallel that to what you find In Proverbs 6, verse 2, where we're warned about not being caught in the net or snare of our words. They were trying to capture Jesus with things that he would say. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, Who is coming to Jesus with that question? Two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful 
The Pharisees were concerned about that one, that part of the question. To pay taxes to Caesar. The Herodians were concerned about that component of the question. Jesus, of course, told them to give to God what was God's and give to Caesar what was Caesar's. But when we take our passage of interest and set it into its context, what is going on is the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees are trying to trip up Jesus. Now, of those three, look at the first one for our thoughts in the Bible class hour, the Pharisees. Paul described the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 26, verse 5, as the strictest or the straightest, we would say the most conservative sect of the Jewish religion. It is believed etymologically that the word Pharisee makes its way back to a term that means separate, and thus they are known as the separated ones. Josephus tells us they never numbered very many. In the time of Jesus, about 6,000 strong. But help me with this adage. The squeaky wheel gets what? It gets the grease or it gets the oil. And they were the squeaky wheel in Jesus' day. They were the ones that were constantly coming and challenging Jesus with what he did, with what he said, or with the day in which he did what he did. Now the conflict between Jesus and the separated ones comes from a background where the Pharisees placed their allegiance. It was believed that when Moses received the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai, he received the written law. But it was also believed by these individuals that he received an oral law, a law that was given to him verbally. And so he brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, but he also brought that oral law down and shared it with Joshua. And then Joshua with the judges, and then the judges with the prophets, and the prophets with the fathers of the families, and down through the generations of time to where you had this oral law that was wrapped up in what the Pharisees referenced as the traditions of our fathers. And when Jesus and the Pharisees were locking horns, it was always over one of two things. Either over Jesus doing something that was contrary to the traditions of the fathers, the traditions of men literally, or Jesus was doing something that went cross-grain to the legalistic interpretation of the scribes placed upon Old Testament teachings. Now, that's the group of people that Jesus is encountering in Mark chapter 12. A very legalistic, ultra-conservative, ultra-critical, condemnatory group of people 
that expected Jesus and his apostles to goose step to the oral traditions of man and the man-made legalistic interpretations of the scribes. And Jesus refused. He refused to let anything other than the will of God direct his life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every literally utterance, not word, every utterance that travels out of the mouth of God, Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 4. Jesus said, the beginning of every syllable that has ever traveled from the mouth of God is the authority by which we are to live. And that's how Jesus lived his life. He would not cater to these legalistic, man-made traditions of the Pharisees. So when they would come and say, is it lawful to pay taxes? They're thinking about these traditions of the elders and the legalistic interpretations of the scribes. When they came in Matthew chapter 19, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? Again, it's this concept in Old Testament scripture that they are running over in their minds to which Jesus responds with the word of God. So in the context of our passage, Jesus is in conflict with Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees. We're giving our attention to the first of those two groups. Now the Pharisees came to Jesus in the context of our passage wanting to trip him up in his words. Comparing his words to what they deemed authority. With that context in mind, now in our arena known as interpretation, let's shift from the context to the text. Our passage of interest today had something specifically designed for the heart of these Pharisees. Jesus said something they needed to hear with their skewed concept of authority. Jesus answered him, one of the scribes, one of the Sanhedrin that came himself to Jesus on this occasion. He said, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Stop right there. Now, in that reading, there was a message the Pharisees needed to hear. He directed the attention of these individuals back to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He says to these people that are listening to the oral traditions of men... 
He says to these people who are listening to the legalistic interpretations of men more than the actual word of God. He says to these people with a skewed concept of authority, listen to the Lord your God. He's the one that has the authority. Hear, O Israel, the Lord. This, by the way, is called the Shema, or the Shema. Coming from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. It was a part of the Jews' morning prayer and evening prayer. It opened the synagogue service. It was thought to be the last words of Rabbi Akaba, the most influential rabbi of the first century, who contributed to the Jewish Mishnah who was referenced in the Jewish Talmud as the head of all the sages. And Rabbi Akaba supposedly said these words in his dying breath. And so they meant something to a Jew. They really did. And so Jesus has a message to these legalistic Pharisees. You listen to the Lord your God. This is called the Shema or the Shema. Because the word translated here, back in Deuteronomy 6, is that word, Shema, or Shema. And so he says to the Pharisees implicitly, you need to be listening to God. Now, if they did, this is what they would hear. From Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Pharisees needed to hear that. If you'll turn with me back to Matthew chapter 15, I'll prove that to be the case. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees came to Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes. And they ask in verse 2, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Watch the wording. They didn't ask, why are your disciples disobeying the word of God? Why are they transgressing the oral traditions supposedly given to Moses, whom, given to Joshua, given to judges, given to to, to the prophets and given to the fathers and handed down. Why are your disciples transgressing the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. They had very legalistic ways traditionally even to wash their hands before they ate. And their hands would have to be dipped so much in, in such a fashion. And water would have to run from the hands down the elbows and, a, and from the elbows. And there had to be a using of the fist to make sure that the hands and, and the arms were cleansed just properly according to the traditions of the elders. And Jesus' disciples did not do so. Well, he answered and said to them, Matthew 15, 3, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? You see, they were pitting the traditions of men. They were pitting the authority of man against the authority of God. Now read verses 8 and 9 of Matthew 15, and it takes on a whole new light. 
These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What people? What people? Look at verse 1. The scribes and Pharisees. Their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as their teachings, doctrines, the commandments of men. The commandments of men in Matthew 15 verse 9, ladies and gentlemen, are not the doctrinal dogma of denominations today. Although implicitly or indirectly they could imply, apply. In context, the commandments of men in Matthew 15 verse 9 were the commandments of the oral traditions handed down through the years to which the Pharisees gave as much or more attention than to the actual Word of God. And because of such, they had a very formalistic, heartless religion. You do it, you do it, you do it, hey, this way. And if you don't do it, If you don't do it, if you don't do it, hey, this way, then you're not right with God. And Jesus said, their heart is far from me. And so when we go back to Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, hear, O Israel, the Lord. He starts off with a message that should have gotten their attention. You need to be listening to God, not to the oral traditions of the fathers. And by the way, if you listen to God, he has a message for you. You who have a heart far from me. If you listen to God, his message to you is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And thus... The context and the text in the arena of interpretation. Now, let's step into a second arena for our thoughts. The arena of application. Let's make our findings live for us. Are you not grateful to live in a day when... We live only by the teachings of the Bible and not the traditions of men. That was a facetious question. Because if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of what we do is found within the perimeter of a comfort zone that has been padded by doing things the way we've always done things. And if we're not careful, tradition is crystallized into truth. And we begin to question the faithfulness of others who do things differently than the way we have traditionally done things. Shake your head if I'm making sense. You see, there is a message in this passage even for us. We must make certain that our belief system 
stands upon and flows from nothing but a thus saith the Lord. Amen? 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, what we believe, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, how we are to behave, that the man of God might be complete, what we're to be, furnished completely unto every good work. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that God has given us the Bible so that with the Bible we can believe what we are supposed to believe, we can behave the way we're supposed to behave, and we can be what we are supposed to be. Ladies and gentlemen, we need no other source of authority other than the Word of God. And thus the question should be, Not, what will others think? What will others say? But what would God think? What has God said? Can I get an amen on that? Do you really believe it? If we take our passage of interest... And invite it through application into our world. Indeed, we are to be individuals who hear the Lord our God. And turn to Him for authority. And make certain that we have a religion that involves the heart. So here's what I want us to do as we spend some time in the arena of application. I want to give you one lesson. Just one lesson. And then I'd like to share with you one suggestion to help that lesson come to life in your life. Here's the lesson. Christianity is a religion of emotion. Let me say that again and really underscore the last word. Christianity is a religion of emotion it must involve your heart look at the passage again in the words of Jesus in verse 30 and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart now there's something going on here in the words of Jesus that has not fleshed out in the translation If we go back to verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, plural, the Lord is one. Our God. But then verse 30, and you. Now you in the English language can be second person plural or second person singular. In verse 30, every time Jesus used the word you... It is singular. The Lord our God is one Lord. Now, you, 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 you as individuals shall love agapao, agape, the, desire, the love that desires what is best for the one that is loved. 
You as an individual shall desire what is best for the Lord you love. You shall love the Lord your God with, translates the Greek preposition, ek, out of. You shall love the Lord your God out of all. Holos, holistic medicine. Holos, the whole of it with all your singular heart. You as a person are required by Jesus in this passage to want what is best for the God that you love with every particle of your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, you should know by now that the spiritual heart has three components. There's an intellectual component, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. There is an emotional component, love one another from the heart, fervently, 1 Peter 1, 22. There is a volitional component, you obeyed from the heart, that form of doctrine delivered unto you, Romans six seventeen. So when we talk about loving God with the whole heart, it's every component. I am to love God with my intellect. Now, what about the songs that you hear and the words that are employed? What about the stories that we as ladies watch on the afternoon television shows? And the compromising circumstances that we see individuals in, morally, immorally. What about the pictures that we allow our minds to focus upon at work when someone comes and brings a magazine we shouldn't be seeing? What about the jokes that we're laughing at? We are to love God with the entirety of our minds. The way we think means, I think this way because I want what's best for God. We are to love God with the heart that thinks and with the heart that feels. I just fell out of love. I just don't love Him anymore. Do you love God? Your love for God ought to gender the kind of love you have for your spouse. I hate you, a teenager says to a mom and a daddy. Then you're not wanting what's best for the God that made you and taught you how to be a son or a daughter. With all of your intellect, with all of your feelings... A man's eyes will never travel where they ought not travel at work. A woman will never be involved with another man. A man will never be involved with another woman, someone other than their spouse, if their feelings want what's best for God. And we love God. Our love for God genders the kind of love we're to have for our spouses, for our children, for our parents, for our brethren. There ought not be a single church to ever split over personality differences and pettiness because we want what's best for God. Our love for God dictates the love that we have for each other. We love God intellectually. We love God 
emotionally, and we love God volitionally. I read it in the Bible. It's a command of God. It's going to be done. Why? I don't want to go to hell. Wrong answer. I read it in the Bible. It's a command of God. It's going to be done in my life. Why? I love God. That's why. Not because I don't want to be punished. When my daddy was dying at 75 years of age, he could have asked anything in this world of me as a son, and he would have gotten it, and I'd have moved mountains to give it to him. Not because I was afraid in his incapacitated state that he could take me behind a woodshed and raise me in my rearing. By the way, he did that many times in my youth. But I did what I did, and I did whatever he needed because, not of a fear of punishment, because of love. And so, volitionally, I obey out of love. Emotionally, I feel out of love. Intellectually, I think out of love. And I love God with every component of the heart. Christianity is a religion of emotion. Emotion is involved in conversion from the heart you obey the form of doctrine delivered unto you Romans 6:17 emotion is involved in the compassion that we are to have as God's people American standard version Colossians 3 verse 12 put on therefore as God's elect holy and beloved a heart of compassion Emotion is involved in the adulation that we should bring to our worship services. In that we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, and making melody with the heart to God. Ephesians 5.19 Or teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. With grace in your heart to God, Colossians 3.16. And emotion is involved in the affection that we are to have for each other. Seeing you have purified your souls in your unfeigned love, Philadelphia, love of the brethren, love of a friend. Seeing you have purified your souls in your unfeigned love, Love, agapao, desire what's best for one another. Love one another from the heart, fervently. The word heart's found some 1,000 times in the 1,189 verses or chapters of the Bible. You kind of get the idea God wants Christianity. He wants His people to be a religion, a people of emotion. It is faith, ladies and gentlemen, with feeling. Christianity, a religion of emotion. Now, the suggestion to make that lesson live in your life and mine. How can I bring more feeling to my faith? I simply suggest... Step into the shadows of Calvary. Stoop down 
and pick up a handful of the blood-stained sand of Golgotha. Look at it carefully. Dare not look up. Just look at the blood-stained sand in the palm of your hand. Then let it fall back to the ground and look at the palm. And there, in the palm of your hand, as you paint this word picture, there in the grooves that we call the lifelines, the stain of the blood of the man that loved you more than he loved life, that loved you more than he loved an equality with God. It's when you stand in the shadows of Calvary that you sense the love of God to such a degree it melts your heart and impregnates your religion with emotion. Man came to a watchmaker and he said, could you fix, could, could, could you fix my wristwatch? I believe I can. That's my business. Could I see it, please? And so the man took the hands of his wristwatch and put them up on the counter. The repairman said, excuse me, sir, where's the rest of the device? The man said, well, there's nothing wrong with the rest of the watch. It's just the hands that don't work. And the man explained. He said, no, sir. He said, that's not the case. It's not the hands. It's what's on the inside that needs fixing. There are some of us probably, truth be told, honest with ourselves, have the mindset of a Pharisee. We need to hear those words. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It's what's on the inside that needs fixing. We'll close on that thought and prepare for worship.